0: This is a Triple J podcast. (laughs) Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack podcast. When you see protesters closing roads, strapping themselves to coal trains, throwing paint on artworks, things like that, how much are you paying attention to what they say? Like, are you listening to the messages around climate change or animal rights? Because people will often say, oh, they're not doing their cause any favours. But is that true? Coming up on Hack, we're exploring how effective extreme protests actually are and whether we can expect to see more extreme protests in the years ahead. You're also going to hear about a solo mum who is killing it at the moment, the croc who had a virgin birth. We're going to tell you what that means. First, though. Hack.
1: There's no place in Australia for this kind of behaviour. On
0: Triple J. Yeah, ever since those pictures of protesters doing Nazi salutes outside Victoria's Parliament House earlier this year, there's been this big push for states to bring in stricter laws around the use of far-right symbols and gestures. But it's also been a discussion in federal parliament. And today, there was a bit of a development. The federal government announced it wants to introduce new laws to publicly ban Nazi symbols. But it does not include the Nazi salute. And the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, says he can't understand why. He says he thinks the government should specifically include the salute in any federal laws. So what's all this about? Let's find out. Josh Burns is a federal Labor MP. He's been pushing for laws to ban Nazi symbols. And he's with me now. Josh Burns, g'day. Thanks for coming on Hack. Good afternoon, Dave. Thanks so much for having me on. You're Jewish. You represent a Melbourne electorate with a big Jewish population, large queer community as well. How difficult has it been for you and for some of your constituents seeing these far-right displays over recent months and and years? Well, I I really appreciate you asking me that question. And
2: I, I was just pretty confronted by the scenes that we saw in our beautiful city in Melbourne and seeing people marching outside the Victorian Parliament you know, saluting the neo-Nazi salutes and trying to intimidate people uh, at an anti-trans rally. It's been really confronting and... I was really grappling with, you know, do I do I give it any more airtime? Do I react to it? Do I talk about it publicly? And ultimately, I came to the conclusion that we need to ensure that our laws are as tight as possible to prevent these sort of glorification happening
0: on our streets, on on online, uh, in in our country. So under these changes, things like Nazi flags, armbands, shirts in public, they'd be outlawed across the country but not the Nazi salute? Why is that? It's
2: a really, really important question. And it goes to the different jurisdictions that our state and federal governments have. So the federal government has responsibility for a range of different parts of our country including the importing and exporting of goods so we you know we we are uh, there controlling what can come in and out of the country uh, we're also responsible for online and and regulating our online involvement so there's two areas that this law will directly impact uh, what we saw in melbourne uh, was people on the streets of Melbourne doing the Nazi salute and doing that salute in person is something that would be uh, regulated or uh, the state governments would have responsibility for it. And the best way to kind of picture that is that if these people were marching up and down Melbourne, which they were, the people on the ground enforcing the law would be the Victorian police and they were the Victorian police. There's no real role for the Australian Federal Police and frankly, Dave, you you wouldn't really want the Australian Federal Police on the streets of our states uh, to be implementing federal law, these laws need to be given to our state police forces to ensure that the sort of neo-Nazi
0: salutes can't happen. But wouldn't state police officers be enforcing this ban anyway? Like as well, they would also be responsible for uh, pulling people up if they were displaying these uh, these symbols in public. Like why couldn't they do that with the salute as well if that was a federal ban?
2: Because the federal police are there to enforce federal laws and the state police are there to enforce the state laws. And that's the, kind of the, the demarcation of how our not only our laws but also our policing is kind of set up. And so the state-based laws that currently exist, uh, including in Victoria, which is a little bit more advanced than some of the other countries, uh, other, other states around the, the country, um they currently implement Victorian state based laws, which has already banned this, you know, put in similar bans to what the federal government's introduced. And so the Victorian police would actually stop the display of the swastika in a sort of glorifying way or the selling of these sorts of products in accordance with the existing state laws in Victoria. What I called for after these marches happened in Melbourne was other states around the country to not only look at replicating those laws but also look at banning the salute. We've had a good look at this. We're working together with the states and territories. This has been a really collaborative process and it just makes the most sense that they are the ones who tackle this sort of in-person
0: situation and we we do the other bits where the federal government has jurisdiction. And how would this affect people who might have things at home as part of a private collection, historical reasons, maybe something's been handed down in their family? Would it Affect them? Great question. The answer is no. If you've got a piece of
2: historical memorabilia that is, you know, a personal family item uh, that you're not using to profiteer off or glorify, uh, then this law will not affect you. And obviously, we don't want to restrict educational purposes. So for museums, for organisations that use material from the Second World War and from the Holocaust to help educate our fellow citizens about what happened, uh, they, they will be absolutely free to go about their business as they usually would. I think it's also worth mentioning, Dave, that you know there are other religions who use especially the swastika as a you know as a, as a as a symbol of their religion obviously the hindu and buddhists use the swastika in their in their own religion and this Uh, this law will have clear exemptions for them as well. Uh, What this is designed to do is to ensure that people who are glorifying this neo-Nazi bigotry and this hateful ideology, uh, they, they will not be allowed to do so, and I think that's fundamentally a good thing. And just to be clear, this applies
0: to social media as well. Yes. And so if people are displaying this stuff on social media, they can expect punishment. There will now be
2: a, a legal framework by which people can take action against and people can be held liable for their own actions and the the, p- the penalties are uh, a significant fine or, or up to 12 months in prison. So uh, we, we don't think it's appropriate that people glorify or they uh, promote neo-Nazi material online. It is not the Australian way. It is not in the interest of Australia. We proudly promote a a multicultural society where people feel welcome. And we don't want to see the sort of hate-based inflammatory actions of people who, frankly, Dave, I was was amazed at how brazen and how public these displays were. And I think it's important that we tighten some of the legislative gaps that were there.
0: And this law does that. All right. Federal Labor MP, Josh Burns, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Thanks so much, Dave. Hack. Growing up in a rural town, you sort of understand rural people. On Triple J. You know, the doctor shortage in the country is something we've spoken quite a bit about this year. Calls for more to be done to get city students out of the city into rural and regional areas. There are incentives in place, but the problem is so big that we need a lot of solutions, right? And experts in the country say part of that needs to be getting more country kids to become doctors because they know their communities, they love their communities, they want to stay there. How can we get them to study medicine? Well, reporter Lily Nothling has been looking into it.
3: So Ryan Luck was in the thick of studying for his second year medical exams when things took a pretty dramatic turn.
4: I lost half my vision, I collapsed and just started vomiting profusely.
3: His housemate, who's also a med student, saw his slowed speech and rushed him to hospital.
4: I thought, I don't have time for this, it's just a bloody migraine. Um, so I was still studying in hospital. And then, yeah, they said I had a stroke. And they also found a hole in my heart that had to be repaired.
3: The 20-year-old spent a few weeks in hospital and even had to relearn fine motor skills. For most, it'd be a good excuse to put uni on hold. But for Ryan, it just made him more determined.
5: It really showed me how much a doctor can um, help someone out and how, how much of an important role they play.
3: He wants to become a rural doctor, and people like him are in high demand.
6: We are facing uh, a more significant shortage than we ever have in terms of our rural and remote patients accessing the care that they deserve.
3: That's Dr Michael Clements. He's a North Queensland GP and the Rural Chair of the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners. He's really worried about the state of healthcare in the bush.
6: We do have a situation where we need to come up with some drastic and emergency solutions so that we don't see uh, the continued decline to the point that your life expectancy uh, for living in one part of Australia is dramatically different to the other.
3: Students like Ryan could be part of that solution. He's the first in his family to go to uni and credits his passion for rural medicine to growing up in a small Queensland town himself.
6: To such
4: a huge scope of things, you get to see such an interesting career and just the lifestyle as well. Like I've grown up in Dolby so I definitely like being in a small, close-knit community. Yeah, and all the benefits that has. So it's definitely something that I want to go back to.
3: <laughs> he reckons more country kids should be encouraged and supported to become doctors because they're more likely to want to go back to work in small communities. Dr Michael Clements agrees.
6: We know that if you take somebody from the bush, give them really good training and exposure to good medicine, um, then they're likely to go back and want to support the bush and and that's a a, a very well-evidenced outcome.
3: There are heaps of incentives around to attract rural doctors. The government will even wipe your hex debt. And Queensland has started offering bonuses of up to 70,000 bucks to healthcare workers who move to remote communities. Dr Clemens says another part of the puzzle could be more compulsory uni placements in rural areas.
6: You can't be what you can't see. So if we don't give our medical students and junior doctors exposure to rural work and to rural general practice work, then we can't expect them to make uh, an informed decision to choose it.
3: That's been the case for Julie George, who's on placement right now in the North Queensland mining town of Collinsville. She grew up in a small village in Sudan and is passionate about providing equitable health care to marginalised communities. I definitely like to work in a rural area, just that draws similarity to my hometown and to be able to um, alleviate those discrepancies.
6: Rural remote communities deserve doctors who want to be there and no patient wants to see a, a doctor that's being dragged, kicking and screaming out to their town. Pack on Triple J.
0: Yeah, really interesting stories there from Lily Nothling. Great to hear from young people in the country about how to solve these big issues in rural areas. You know, someone on the text line says, all of this could be solved with free university. Yes, that is one solution. We know it is something that impacts you, especially if you're struggling getting a doctor's appointment, that sort of thing. It's a big issue and we'll make sure we keep you across it. Shutting down a whole city can be an issue. It doesn't actually help the cause. On Triple J. (laughs) You remember last week we were talking about the South Australian government cracking down on people involved in really disruptive environmental protests. I'm talking about stuff like blocking roads, bringing peak hour traffic to a standstill. Every time something like this happens, people will get furious and they'll say, Oh, that's so dumb. It's bad for their cause. They're not doing themselves any favours. Is that true though? Like, why would protesters keep doing this if they felt like it was bad for their cause, especially if they're now facing more severe penalties? Because There's actually some interesting theories and research behind all of this. Joe Lauder explains.
5: We are standing at the front of the Arts Centre in Melbourne, and uh, on Joe's request, we are looking up at the Arts Spire, the same Arts Spire that I climbed and... um hung a banner off maybe a month ago. My name's Brad Homewood. I'm a member of Extinction Rebellion Victoria and a very dedicated climate activist.
7: I'm standing with Brad on the lawn next to the Melbourne Arts Centre and we're looking up at the spire. Picture it like a mini Eiffel Tower. Brad's been arrested 12 times since 2019. That's when he joined Extinction Rebellion. His biggest stunt recently was right where we are.
5: Climbed up in the dark to the that apex of the the triangle and I waited there for about 45 minutes for the sun to come up and the lights to go off because there's lights all over that grid and I didn't want to start hanging the banner just in case. Fire danger? Yeah well I just wanted to play it safe yeah I didn't want anything to catch a light. I've got a lot of climbing experience I've been trained up really well and we didn't take any risks
7: at all. How did you feel about how it turned out and the response that you got?
5: Uh, We're very happy we're pretty sure that we would get a lot of media And we did, and yeah, it was basically a publicity stunt.
7: Recently in South Australia, Extinction Rebellion had a wave of climate protests, including one where a protester abseiled from a bridge and blocked traffic, causing a traffic jam. They copped a lot of hate, and in response, the government even changed the laws and introduced huge fines for disruptive protests. And whenever these kind of protests happen, a really common response is people saying that it's actually bad for their cause. Even the Prime Minister said it.
5: It doesn't actually help the cause.
7: Brad disagrees. He wouldn't do it otherwise.
5: Yeah, we call it shifting the Overton window. So it's what's deemed to be acceptable. We're very much at the tip of the spear, but what we do allows other people to come in our wake and do other things.
7: And their goal is to get a very specific number of people involved.
5: We're trying to mass mobilise. Our theory of change is for mass mobilisation. There's a lot of social research uh, that says that if you can mobilise... 3.5% 3.5% of the population. Uh, historically speaking, that's never failed to force a government's hand.
8: Whether you love them or hate them, they become flashpoints
7: for community support and community outrage as well. That's Dr. Robin Gulliver. She's a research fellow at the University of Queensland, and she studies the environmental movement in Australia. First up, she says these kind of protests are really rare, like less than 1% of environmental actions. She knows because she's counted.
8: Our research shows that there's thousands of environmental groups and and every year, roughly, they might engage in say 15,000 different types of events. And those events can range from the most common type of event, which I think in 2017, the most common type of event was actually a film screening. But you're not gonna hear about most of these activities because they're not designed to generate media attention.
7: And I guess we're kind of proving the point or the whole theory behind all of this by talking about this right now, right? We're not talking about a film screening. (laughs) Exactly. Robin says it's really hard to measure how successful disruptive protests are because it depends on what the goal is. But some climate groups internationally were worried about how much people hated their tactics. So they decided not to disrupt everyday people in their next protest. And they didn't get any attention that time. But on the other hand, some groups are going to new levels to make you notice them.
8: And a great example of this, of course, is the soup throwing incident on the painting, right? The volume of media attention that particular incident, other art gallery incidents, got was overwhelming. Like, I think it was more than fifty million views across one
7: platform for that particular incident. So. Does it harm their cause? Well, there's some European researchers that looked into that question with Extinction Rebellion, and the results might surprise you.
8: So they did a survey before these disruptive protests, which were people blowing themselves on the road, and then a survey afterwards. And they asked, "What do you think of the protesters?" and Extinction Rebellion, and then they asked, "What do you think about the issue of climate change?" And yes, people really didn't like the protesters, but. Everybody who cared about climate change before those protests cared about it afterwards as
7: well. And look, Brad gets that some of their protests are annoying, but he thinks it works.
5: We genuinely don't enjoy that part of it. We like to look at ourselves as the smoke alarm. So uh, the smoke alarm goes off in the middle of the night. Nobody likes being woken up in the middle of the night. Most people look back the smoke alarm, and they're really grateful that it got them out of the house because the house was on fire.
4: You're listening to Hack on Triple J.
5: Joanna Lauder with that story.
0: And I want to know what you think about extreme forms of protesting. Do you think we'll start to see more of it? Message in 0439757555. Got some messages coming through. Someone said, as as soon as you stop me from going about my day-to-day life, you've lost my vote another person says if governments are going to continue to burn the world then we should have protests absolutely let's get into it a bit more now dr aiden ricketts is a lecturer and an expert on protests he's from southern cross university hey aiden thanks for coming on hack hi how are you yeah well thank you these really dramatic protests throwing paint on artwork stopping traffic it feels like we're seeing more and more of it now but is
1: that right Uh, No, probably not necessarily. Um, I mean, protest has a, you know, a hundreds of year, at least hundreds of year history, depending on how you define it. Um, You know, we usually do a genealogy through suffragettes, the civil rights movement. And and in Australia, particularly with environmental protests, we've got a very long and proud history of very disruptive protest in the form of blockades like Daintree, Jalundi. Bentley blockade, uh, you know, Franklin River, Jabaluka, and so on, that have been quite very disruptive and very successful. And I must say also peaceful. Um, You know, one of the things that marks out Australian protesters is a very good record for peacefulness. Does it actually
0: have the opposite effect of turning people off? Like we heard a bit of that discussion just then, but what's your take on this?
1: Look, uh, look! I've always been a great fan of nonviolent direct action and the word direct tends to be fairly important there in that when you're blockading a coal mine, a coal port, a, you know, a fracking site, an old-growth logging operation... Um, there's a great deal of support from the community in a way because it's very obvious what the thing is. It's a very direct action in the sense that you're actually trying to stop the very thing that you're trying to stop. Um, When you are stopping, you know, traffic in a city for the purpose of making a point, then you do generate, uh, you know, more anger, more disapproval and perhaps less support. Um, But, you know, like your, your package is sort of exploring, you know, whether that means that you don't provoke the question... Um, you know, is is anybody's guess in a way. So do you think
0: we're going to start seeing more dramatic protests, more things to shock us in the future? Is that where it's going to have to
1: go? Well, I mean, I think we've got the, you know, the situation of the Code Red for Humanity, the real risk of extinction, the, you, you know, the sleepwalking into the climate catastrophe. I mean, I'm from Lismore, you know, I've already been out in a tinny rescuing people off their roofs. I mean, you know, we're sleepwalking into something that's incredibly catastrophic and then we're complaining about protesters blocking roads. So, um, you know, there's there's a, a sense of proportionality, I suspect, about the future we're going into and I can understand young people... Taking a hard line on that.
0: What about the protests that we see—the really peaceful ones in cities and things like that? Do they make much of a difference? Because you know they might not get any media coverage at all.
1: Oh, look, look! in, In the big stretch, they really do. Social movement activity is enormously powerful, and I think one of the 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 most disempowering means is the idea that they don't change anything. I mean, protest. You know, without environmental protest, Australia probably would have been full of uranium mines and nuclear reactors, and it's not, and it probably never will be. Um, you know, without those protests, we wouldn't have Southwest Tasmania. Uh, you know, we wouldn't have most of the old growth forests of northern New South Wales or the daintree and so on. So, it is it is traditionally successful, but it isn't always successful at the time of the protest. And I would have to say, one of the things I notice is that politicians go to a great deal of effort to make it appear that the protest doesn't succeed but then that they do something about the problem um, a little bit down the track. Well
0: look we do appreciate your insight into this Dr Aidan Ricketts from Southern Cross Uni thank you very much for explaining that thanks for coming on Hack. Thank you. We've got some messages coming through someone says call them what they are terrorists they're trying to incite fear Uh, you know, doesn't mean they should stop other people from doing their jobs just because they don't have jobs. Very severe message there on the text line. Someone else says, uh, how else are we meant to stop them? Put pressure on the government so they stop acting. And another person says they work in an abattoir and recently people have been breaking into companies, abattoirs, chaining themselves to things. And they said, look, it actually means that we have to work overtime or work faster for the rest of the week to make up for numbers. And it's actually not making much of a difference. Lots of different opinions on that one.
6: Hack! Virginity is cool! Come on,
0: come on! On Triple Jack. Yeah, there's always something new in the animal kingdom to blow us away. And this crocodile virgin birth is one of them. A female crocodile who had no contact with a male croc for 16 years has got herself pregnant, effectively, at a zoo in Costa Rica. She's produced a fetus it was 99.9% genetically identical to herself. It is called a virgin birth. It's not completely new, but it is the first time it's been seen in crocs. So how does it even happen? Billy Collette is from the Australian Reptile Park and is a bit of an expert on all things crocs, and he's with us now. G'day, Billy. Thanks for coming on Hack. No worries, mate. Good to be here. What the hell has happened here? Like a virgin birth with a crocodile? What is this?
4: Yeah, so it's, it's pretty wild, because this is the first one that's been confirmed, but I'm actually not that surprised about it because we've seen a lot of this with reptiles, um, in particular snakes and lizards. The first real big one um, was quite a few years ago now, and it was uh, it was a Komodo dragon, a female Komodo that had never, ever been near a male um, in a zoo over in Europe, and she dropped a healthy clutch of eggs um, which hatched out these beautiful little Komodo dragons. So, And I, I know personally of a few private keepers that have had snakes at home do it. You know, they've bought a a young female a python is a tiny little hatchling and you know 6 or 7 years later she's dropped a healthy clutch of eggs fertile so it's absolutely wild, um, but I guess the the longer we're keeping reptiles in captivity, the more and more we're starting to learn about them.
0: That's so interesting. So I imagine people are going to be thinking, oh, hold on, maybe there's just more to this story that we don't know. Maybe there was another there was a partner that got into the enclosure or whatever, but they've been able to uh, figure out that this is completely genetically from the mum, right?
4: Yeah, so she was hatched as a little you know a little juvenile. 16 years ago never been with another crocodile and now at the age of 16 she's dropped a clutch of eggs um that are fertile that i believe they have in the incubator and look really good so it's it's wild man it's it's unbelievably wild and we're not sure what causes this trigger in some of them like why not all of them do it like why is there only some that are doing it we, we don't know but it's mind-blowing that they're capable of doing that
0: Is there still a lot that we don't know? You kind of said this before, but about crocodiles or reptiles in general, how they breed, but also how they live. Yeah, so
4: they've been keeping crocs or crocodilians for about not quite 90 years in in captivity properly. And, you know, each year that goes by, people are learning more and more. And And to be honest, I would bet money that this wouldn't be the first time it's happened just people probably haven't realised it's happened and they've thrown the eggs out. Because, you know, when when crocs, like female crocodiles, uh, you know, when they hit sexual maturity, even if they're not a male, they still produce a clutch of eggs every single year. So they still go through the process of scratching up a nest site or, or for the, the Cuban crocodile, I believe it was, they dig a hole in the sand, so there's a little bit different. But they still seek out nesting sites. They still lay a clutch of eggs. Um, you know, I've seen... Female saltwater crocodiles do this. American alligators and Australian freshwater crocodiles, and most people would, I guess, would just, you know, blow it off as a as an infertile clutch of eggs and
0: and throw them out. I mean, you obviously know heaps about crocs. You uh, talk to a lot of people who do as well, professionals, experts. Do you think that we will be seeing more of this kind of thing potentially um, as animals adapt? Oh,
4: definitely, definitely. I, I think, and I think more so with females that are kept in captivity without males are probably going to go through this process as you know this crazy thing that they do to be able to survive and reproduce like you know you've got to imagine reptiles have been around since before the dinosaurs and they have just evolved into these like literally perfect animals and for crocs especially or crocodilians especially like they're literally one of the most well designed predators on the face of the planet And this just goes to show, you know, another example why. It's just one of those crazy mysteries that nature throws at us and I guess we won't really work out
0: entirely until we see it a bit more. It's so fascinating and it's great to speak to someone who's really passionate about this stuff. And I'm sure there's probably a lot of people uh, listening Probably a lot of women listening going, It's about time humans did that. We get rid of the guys and just do it ourselves. <laughs> Billy Collette from the Australian Reptile Park, thanks for um thanks for filling us in. I appreciate it.
4: No worries. Thanks, mate.
0: Yeah, so much interesting stuff in in that story. You can go read about it. ABC News has a big article about it. We're getting a lot of messages through as well on the protesting story that we had a bit earlier. Someone says, great, so does this mean... um, Oh, no, this is the Croc story, actually. Someone says, does this mean it's possible that in the future we can do it without men altogether? Well, who knows? Who knows? On the protest stuff, someone says, yeah, activists should focus on moving into politics instead of disruptive protests if these activists were in politics wouldn't they be able to make more significant change that was from courtney in melbourne another person says ask extinction rebellion how they feel about the ambulances that couldn't get through the traffic but then another person says two words for you Tiananmen square someone else says it's a fine line for protesters there are people who will have no idea what they're protesting about uh, without the disruption, they might never find out. I've recently discovered that I know people who are completely unaware of the referendum later this year, and it shows that there are social media bubbles that really don't help. That was from Chloe, And then another person says disruptive protesters are just human forms of pop-up ads on the internet. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.